0: You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office.
1: Doug Greg Stokes, Lanyap Podcast. It is September 21st. Uh, markets are selling off today in response, uh, at least theoretically in response to uh the Fed uh, position from yesterday, and and, uh, comments from uh, Chairman Jay Powell. Specifically, what Chairman Powell uh, said yesterday was essentially that the inflation data is a little bit sticky, that uh, the economic growth is stronger than expected, and so rates are going to be higher for longer, and the market really doesn't like that um, today. So, Anticipations of rate cuts, In June, I read that there were four anticipations of rate cuts in 2024 and five in 2025. Uh, Now, there's an anticipation of a rate hike in November, followed by two cuts in 2024. And so higher for longer is is not great for floating rate type assets, uh, uh, companies that have high levels of debt specifically uh, debt that matures short-term or have floating rate type debt, commercial real estate, the housing market. And so um, I think just from that perspective, interest rates, higher interest rates are negative. The positive side to this is the reason that there's higher for longer is uh, economic growth is strong and surprisingly strong. And so I think that that's a silver lining here is that we're not really running into an economic brick wall, uh, at least based on the data. And so uh, the Fed can be a little bit uh, more cautious as it relates to rate cuts and and land the plane a lot slower versus a dramatic drop. Now, things can change in the future, but I think that that's another read
2: from what Powell said yesterday. Greg, what are your thoughts? Uh, I think Colin Roche captured it perfectly when he said that the the Fed's message was essentially pain will continue until morale improves, um, which basically is what uh, Jay Powell is saying. The Fed has a concern that if you look back at history and inflationary cycles, there tends to be two separate peaks and there's a psychological component to inflation. And so they really wanna make sure that the data confirms that there's not gonna be a resurgence in inflation before cutting rates. The Fed uh, said yesterday that there, are, I think 12 Fed governors of the 12 uh, there, a majority of them think there's going to be one additional hike this year. The market doesn't buy that. The market thinks we're done hiking in this particular cycle. There's the, what the Fed says and what the market price is in. Um, but the, the market also thinks that the Fed's rates are going to stay higher longer. The, the, the uh, market thinks that the, the uh, end of 2024, the Fed funds rate is going to be 4.7. Um, the end of 2025, 44 so overall, consistency and the expectation that there's going to be a long, uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, runway ahead of us for higher rates. Um, what the Fed is, uh, we've talked about this ad nauseum, Doug, but if you look at the underlying CPI data, the big composite of that, or the one, I think either the biggest or the second biggest composite of that is housing. And the, the fact of the matter is, is that housing is coming down on a uh, rapid clip because of um, uh, the the fact that the, the housing data itself is lagging, and we're looking at what the what the actual inflationary data was in terms of what the Fed's uh, calculus uh, details way way back in the in the rearview mirror. And once that data actually comes through to the present data, and we the lag effect disappears, that's really going to bring the overall inflation down. And the Fed's just waiting to see that for a while before proceeding with cutting rates. So it's a it is really we're at a, at a sort of inflection point. the market thinks we're done hiking um, and then the Fed thinks we've got one more ahead of us. I would be um, I, I think that if I if I had to guess, I bet you we were done hiking as well too. The market' sold off significantly today, and I think the data is going to con, going to continue to get worse in um, meaning that the inflation data is going to come down, economic data is going to get worse, and that's going to be something that the Fed can use as justification for probably not hiking anymore, but it remains to be seen of course. Yeah, and then this is a
1: this is a chart from uh, Calafia Beach pundit this uh, this blogger Scott Granis who we reference a lot, but this is an amazing uh, chart to, really just to hit home the impact of housing on CPI and the lag effect. This is the Case-Shiller index, which is the home price index, and uh, with an eighteen-month lag versus CPI. And uh, basically what it's showing is uh, the housing price index is coming down dramatically from 2022 to 2023. And you can see the lag effect, and we'll post this to the show notes, that CPI is just starting to roll over. And so we're going to have that tailwind, that disinflationary tailwind that we talked about last week coming into the picture. Uh, Greg, let's uh, uh, shift quickly to uh, maybe some positive news, at least this week, that we've had a couple – in the last 10 days or so a couple of
2: successful ipos you want to talk about that yeah um specifically instacart ipo'd and i bet you they're kicking themselves for not ipoing when they were the sort of talk of town in the in the COVID era i remember my family for example we used instacart and like uber eats uh doordash etc like um fiends during the uh pandemic because we didn't want to go to grocery stores for health reasons or whatever um if and this is really so anyway the the IPO uh for Instacart they IPOed at like $30 a share the next day that particular IPO was very reminiscent of like a covid like the covid uh, bubble IPO was up like 25 or 30% the next day as it stands right now I'm curious what the actual stock price is it IPOed at 30 went to 42 now it's back to 30 so a long a long round trip back to where it started but I saw this was really interesting as far as the people that, or people and entities that invested in Instacart pre-IPO, um, the way that these these uh, private companies work is they raise money from uh, institutions and individuals on a private basis before they ultimately go to the public markets. If you go back to tw- this this particular chart goes back to 2012. If you look back at the numbers over that period of time, the people in 2012 that bought into to Instacart um, did pretty well they they uh, vastly and this is like um, the series this is the seed series in 2012 series a series B etc those particular entities uh, did far and above beyond the S p 500 but if you look at the series C which and they beyond, should
1: I mean you should be compensated for risk that you're taking so yeah I mean if you're gonna invest in a private company that uh, you know as a startup and you're betting on an idea and you're locking up money for 10 years you you better get a damn good return. But anyway, go ahead.
2: And if you look at the, and, and on the other hand, if you look at when this, when uh, Instacart and DoorDash and Uber Eats or whatever were at right in their high, they raised a ton of money in 2020, 20, like they did three different series in 2020, one in 2021. And then 2021, that's when they started to get a lot of retail money, like Fidelity, T-Row Price, and Sequoia put all put money in that particular round, the Series I their return on their IPO price is negative 51%. So versus the S&P 500, the S&P 500 is up over that period of time. So they're down negative 70%. Pretty crazy if you think about it. And and this is really indicative of that particular sort of, of, I, I don't know if it was necessarily a bubble, but I guess you could call it a bubble in that particular period of time when people were throwing money at any sort of venture capital idea and Instacart was riding the high of, all these post COVID COVID stocks for obvious reasons. Speaking of Doug, before we shift gears, Peloton is at an all time low. It's at four dollars a share. At one point in COVID, got up to one hundred and fifty dollars a share. I rode my Peloton this past weekend, and it seems like the uh,
1: the instructors are. They're not. they They seem sad to me. I don't know if they they roll
2: a lot of their earnings into Peloton <laughs> stock, but um, yeah, not as hyped be up as they used to be. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, or they or they see the writing on the wall that may, they may, that that company may go bankrupt. Yeah, I, have, I, I don't track it at all, but I, I imagine that uh, it's
1: there's not a whole lot of happy campers around there. Um, one thing I'll say about like the venture capital industry in general, which is just really difficult to. Um, from an investor's perspective to really stomach is that these companies whether it's Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia or whoever Colsa Ventures there's there are a lot of tier 1 you know A players out there what they do is they'll have uh, you know 50 100 portfolio companies per round and it seemingly to me I mean there's a lot more sophistication theoretically a lot more sophistication to this than what I'm describing but Uh, What they're doing is they're getting really competitive with each other to get access to what are seemingly the best companies, the best founders, the best ideas, et cetera, starting from seed stage and all the way through the last round before an IPO. And typically, the way that this works is it's like throwing darts at the dartboard. I mean, you've got um, you know you're just you're just hoping that you know two or three of them out of the fifty that are in your fund hit the bullseye and our fund makers, they return more than the fund themselves. And so it's really a crazy way to uh, invest, at least from my perspective, that um, you're really just hoping that a small percentage of the investments that you make, make up for all the losses that the other investments in the fund are going to have. And so, um, you know, Instacart was sort of a golden child for these, at least these old, early stage investors. The one that's that tried to, the ones that tried to get on to the train in the late stage. Uh, typically, those are last dollars in before they're going to IPO, and then all of a sudden the IPO market froze, and those people,
2: um, the Fidelities and T-Row prices of the world got hosed. Uh, yeah, but even even, even this even these people that were the seed round, they did they did great. They did forty percent over the S P five hundred over that period of time. Yeah, forty oh, an percent annualized basis. Yeah it's, yeah, it's it's fantastic. I guess you, you, that to your point, that's a that's a fantastic return. But is that does that make a over? the guess a decade. Yeah, it's like a what is that on it's a compound basis? Massive. Like, what is it like on a on a uh, cumulative basis? Well, you can see here they IPO'd
1: at nine point three billion and they bought in at seventy five million. So that's a hundred x. Hundred x. Uh, right. So, so that's that how you day. make your money on that. Right. <laughs> exactly. So you buy
2: <laughs> you, the way the way that venture capital works is you buy into these like you're mentioning 50 uh, random companies if and they and a lot of these ideas sound so wacky to begin with um, especially in 2012 a, a uh, delivery grocery delivery services I'm sure sounded crazy because we weren't even at that point in time uber was just coming out and the technology probably was probably it wasn't even that idea uh,
1: at the time you know these companies sh- shift and pivot and um, you know, my my understanding is that at least from a seed round, you're really betting more on the team, um, and there. I mean, maybe the idea too, but you're the founding team is really the people that you're backing, and so. But yeah, I think, um, yeah, you know, it's the it, the scary thing here is that um, all even those people that the Colses and Y Combinators and you know Sequoias of the world that invested early. Uh, I'm sure they're happy with their 100x return, but think about it was probably a three to four hundred x they thought they were going to get a couple of years ago, and so mm-hmm. they're probably anchored to that and and realize that
2: uh, you know that's not that's not the case anymore. Right, and and on top of all on top of that, all these people that came in late just got completely hosed. Um, so it that, but you're right. It's like the, the way that the methodology of this particular industry is that they try to get one or two winners that make up for every everything else, but that what, what ended up happening is that over the last decade, this, this particular, um, from 2012, really, this is a, a pretty illustra- illustrative uh, life cycle of uh, venture capital. These investments got so popular that the prices of them got bid up. All the good ideas, like you're saying, are, the, got re- way more expensive. And so I'm sure that if you look back on a, um, on a prospective basis for any ideas that came out later on in the cycle, it's going to be really tough for these funds to make money um, because not only are you relying upon two or three to work out, but the prices of those two or three when you first invested in them in 2012, 2013 were much higher, probably, than they were in 2012, 2013. Um, so it's it's a it's a, a very cyclical type thing as well too. I don't know. I think we had referenced it previously that over the la- in 2022 there was only like three billion dollars or something like that raised for venture capital that particular year. So maybe this is a good time to be looking at those as potential investments because nobody wants to touch them on the opposite side of the equation is probably a bad time to be investing 2020 2021 when everybody wanted to be a venture capitalist etc yep that's the I mean that's a,
1: a very great example of herd mentality I think the crypto boom the venture boom uh, they come in waves um, you know and then you've got the like short-term rental boom people are buying up airbnbs like crazy with low, Load uh, interest rate debt, uh, and uh, all of a sudden you get a slowdown in your, um, you know, your rental income and an increase in your interest rate, and you're uh, you're not looking pretty pretty good there. And I think that's a there's another uh, chart in here. We can shift gears a bit, but in terms of uh, second homes and the demand for second homes, uh, it's just completely fallen off a cliff what you would expect in a higher interest rate environment in a, a period where people are traveling less. Uh, the demand for second homes is uh, 30% below where it was pre even pre-pandemic. That's crazy. Uh, and so uh, that's according to Redfin. And so you've got um, that side of the market. The very cyclical sides of the market are really experiencing some pain right now. On one end, it's real estate, which is uh, very interest rate uh, driven and I think the same thing with venture capital is very interest rate driven because people are saying what look, look if if interest rates are 0%, I don't mind really locking money up because I'm not really getting any money on my cash. I'll lock money up for 10 years uh, because my alternative, my opportunity cost is really not much uh, in that in a portfolio if those are the two options that you have, uh, in contrast, if you have interest rates at five and a half percent and somebody's saying, okay, let's lock money up for 10 years, I'm gonna throw some darts at the wall. Well you're like, well, or I could just sit on cash for, at five and a half percent and just clip clip that way. And so um, two very interest rate sensitive markets that are uh, that are on c- completely complete opposite ends of the investment spe- spectrum that are both
2: experiencing some, uh, some heartache. Just to put the interest rate situation in context, the ten-year Treasury now—I think er- earlier today—got to like close to four and a half percent, which is the highest that it's been since 2007. So we're at like 16-year highs on the Treasury. Charlie Bellello posted this awesome chart as it relates to the uh, total returns on an annual basis of uh, the ten-year U.S. Treasury bond. Obviously, 2021, 2022 were horrible years, but we're really—it's really—we're really unpre- in really, really uncharted territory where. We're on the third, going on in 2023, the 10-year treasury on a, on a total return basis is down 1.5%. We're, th- we're in three consecutive years of negative um, bond returns. That has not happened going back to 1928. We had, we had two, two consecutive years um, in 1958, 1959, 1955, and 1956. Both of those years, it was down 1% or 2%. 1994 was a as a horrible year in the bond market per our dad he, he tells us war stories about that but in but we really if you look at the numbers that's we're really in uncharted territories as far as how, how bad, <coughs> excuse me how bad the bond market has been um, for three straight years which was also probably indicative of a good time to usually in the markets when people are doing one thing in this particular case people are not want, wanting to own bonds. And you have a historically bad run, three straight years of negative returns, if you year to date so far for 2023. Likewise, in venture capital, when you had everything was booming, if you had, if you do, usually when you when you look at the, what the herd is doing, and you go the opposite way, it works out to, to, in your favor a lot of times. Um, and so, it's probably a pretty good time to be buying bonds. And that's what uh, Julian Timmer um, basically indicated on his um, uh, his, his Twitter post. He looked at the relative pricing of a five-year Treasury yield relative to Treasury inflation-protected securities, and he, his research indicates that, like the 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 market is expecting, basically for inflation to normalize over the next year or two or whatever. And of course, you can buy a ten-year Treasury yield or a five-year Treasury yield for, for the mid in the mid fours or uh, high fours on that end of the spectrum. And if inflation normalizes to two percent. And you're buying a five-year or a ten-year Treasury at four and a half percent now. It seems like it's a that spread between four and a half percent of Treasury yield, guaranteed yield from the U.S. government, and inflation is your real return above inflation return of two and a, two two and a half percent. So things look to be pretty good in the bond market from a prospective return standpoint. But of course, nobody wants to own bonds right now because we've had three straight years of uh, negative returns, just like when everybody wanted to own venture capital after. All the venture capitalists were, um, you know. That, going that right. reminds me of uh, a book
1: that Meb Faber wrote um, back in 2008 called "The Ivy Portfolio," and he did a study of mean reversion. and um, And this is an article. He actually just clipped a piece from his book uh, that we can post to the show notes. But the uh, it's a really interesting study. It says asset class mean reversion 1975 to 2007. He wrote the book in 2008. He says, uh, in all years, uh, average return for um, markets and then after two down years in a row, after three down years in a row, so this is across different asset classes, whether it's stocks, bonds, real estate, commodities, et cetera, the the frequency of any asset class being down three straight years, the the probability of that is 1.21%. The average return over the next 12 months after three straight down years for any asset class, stocks, bonds, whatever, 33.93% annual annual return after three straight down years. So um, we'll see what happens over the next 12 months for bonds. It's it's hard to envision an environment where bonds return 33%, but the probability of four straight down years in fixed income is quite low. So you would imagine there's some mean reversion that's that's set up uh, on a prospective basis, just to
2: uh, hammer home the point you were just making. Absolutely, and and to hammer home the the craziness that exists exists in venture capital. I was thinking about the so there's exuber- there's extreme negativity in the bond market, but there was extreme exuberance in the venture capital space, which is you know where uh, Instacart operated and raised a ton of money, and that people got smoked for the last several years that gave any money to them. But they were these venture capitalists were just throwing money at any idea that, that came across their desk, and there were a lot of frauds obviously that that took place as it relates to people coming to these venture capitalists with crazy ideas that turned turned out to be literal frauds. Like an FTX is a prime example of that. And I remember that that Sequoia uh, that after after uh, Sam Bankman Fried and FTX uh, were exposed as frauds. There was just all this sort of like hindsight is twenty twenty situation, but then the, in the in the case of Sequoia, which also invested in uh, in, in Instacart and their Series D, um, and their Series I, they threw money at it and they lost seventy percent. They also were one of the biggest investors in uh, FTX, and they were there was an article about uh, these uh, uh, these Sequoia founders in a meeting with Sam Bankman-Fried, and he was playing League of Legends through the entire meeting which is like a computer game that nerds like to play i think um, but anyway so <laughs> this, this is the yeah. sort of exuberance that took place on the on the uh, venture capital side of the equation and these sequoia people lost a ton of money on this one and they also lost even though the that use their story is that instacart ipo they got they got completely they lost their ton of money on that lost their shirts yeah i mean that's those are two examples of some
1: losses for sequoia but i, I would also say that they're Probably the 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 best or one of the best historical uh, venture capital firms, but that that's that comes with the territory. But they've they've also been responsible for you know, early stage, yeah, Facebook for example, <laughs> and other companies. So give them credit where credit's due. But we can we can give them a little crap for things like airbnb apple that i'm looking at their portfolio <laughs> companies so those are, those are decent ones yeah so anyway um but yeah they, with w- instagram here's another one with every uh with every you know
2: good one comes a, a couple bad ones that's the nature of that business absolutely so sh- uh shifting gears on i want to sw- shift to uh pop culture before we close our um podcast down for this particular week um number one i this is i i, I lived in uh, san diego for five years and went to law school out there and everything and when when i was out there in the uh early or the late the late knots or whatever we went i lived, lived out there from 2009 to 2013 or whatever um the uh the at that at the outset of when i lived there they were talking about building a like a high-speed railway from san francisco all the way down to san san diego and, of course, that never happened, and the cost of it ballooned, and it's probably never going to happen. They were only able to build, like, a small percentage of it, um, and they were—they already ran over their original budget, building, like, from some t- two farming towns in Northern California or whatever. Can't really get anything done in L.A. anymore. And I saw that, pardon me, can't get anything done in California anymore, and I saw that, or really a lot of big infrastructure projects in the United States, but I saw this in particular in California, this is from the Los Angeles Times, and it made me think of that, of how crazy it was that the uh, rail project in California that never came to, uh, to fruition. This is a, uh, Los Angeles has a extreme problem with homelessness, as we all know, but they all also have an extreme problem with regulation and, and cost overruns and government, et cetera. They just built a licensed tent city for the homeless in uh, Los Angeles at a cost of, get this, $44,000 per tent. Yeah, a lot of people lining their pockets to pitch a tent, essentially. <laughs> right. So, and then, and then, so, so shifting gears on, uh, that's the sort of critique of, uh, of a mismanagement. Something that an individual who's done a fabulous job of managing um, her situation is Taylor Swift. Obviously, who's probably going to make close to a billion dollars in this particular tour. I saw this is from Bloomberg that when she played in Chicago in, in early June, the occupancy was 96.8% for hotels over the course of that weekend three, when she played three shows. And uh, that was the highest ever uh, occupancy in Chicago. And the New Era's tour could generate $4.7 billion in spending in the United States, which is crazy to think about. Um, so kudos to her and um, the business that, uh, acumen that she has. If you she's look, and her, I don't come to New Orleans in a year. We, we need no, her. No, she's coming this in this fall. Yeah. No, no, it's 2024. It's 2024. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that the reason why she's she she's playing all these arenas because she could pack in you know seventy thousand people. Not, I don't know it's seventy thousand people because of, of the way the stage is set up, but she could pack in a ton of people and make money, etc. Um, but the Superdome was just uh, wasn't eligible for the first iteration because it was being renovated. Now that Superdome is the renovations are done, I haven't been to the to the Superdome, but I'm planning on going to the uh, Buccaneers game on October 1st, which I can't wait to see. The Saints look awesome, by the way. Um, Defense looks awesome. Um, Offense a little shaky, um, but I saw this in particular. Doug and I are both big Saints fans, lifelong fans. um, As as relates, which is a which is a pretty interesting um, dynamic that exists for the, the Saints fans because we were horrible for so long. And then we, we were just so 15 blessed. Fifteen years to have, of awesomeness, yeah. right? We had we're blessed to have Breeze, and now we're sort of trying to find our our way. The d de- our defense looks amazing though, and I saw this as it relates to this is from uh, PFF, which is a a football rating ser- service. We have the number one ranked cornerback in the NFL through two weeks at in Marshawn Lattimore, the number two ranked linebacker, Demario Davis, and the number seventh uh, edge rusher and Carl Granderson. And we also have like other amazing guys that that fill in. Um, like this guy uh, Br- Breezy looks awesome as a uh, defensive tackle that we just got from Clemson, rookie. And then we get Cam Jordan. We're just completely stacked on defense. So if we get our, if we tie, and our wide receivers look awesome as well too, and Olave and Rashid Rashid Shahid, who um, who is, is super fast, and uh, and Mike uh, Thomas, obviously. So we we got a lot of the a, a lot of. Uh, potential here if we can get our offensive line and quarterback working then we could be we could have a nice run I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of bullish on the Saints as it stands right now New Orleans is always more fun in the fall when the Saints
1: are good so hoping for the best thanks for joining this uh, this week and we'll see you next week uh, give us a five-star review and share with your friends
2: thanks guys
0: for listening to this episode of lanyap this podcast is brought to you by stokes family office if you liked this episode consider sharing it with a friend you can subscribe to future episodes in apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts for more information about stokes family office and lanyap visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com